right, well, good morning, church. I hope you're glad to be here today. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Billy. Uh, I get the privilege to serve as one of the pastors here, and that's a great honor uh, to me. If it's your first time, we're so glad uh, that you are here. A couple of announcements before we jump into the book of Isaiah this morning. Uh, one, you should have received a card on your way in. Uh, this is uh, our 412 reading plan. So if you're uh, a, a person that comes very often, you've heard this before, but we as a church love to read the Bible together. Uh, this is actually where uh, my sermon comes from. This is where our groups uh, base their discussion. And so uh, 412 comes out of the uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that talks about the Word of God being living and active, and so we as a church want you to be reading God's Word, and we'd love to do it uh, together with you. This is also found on our app, so if you do not have the Connection Church Vidaya app, definitely take the opportunity to download that. We have Bible study questions on there for you on a daily basis, and so please jump into that. The second announcement is next week is July 4th. Uh, July 4th, we are going to be doing one service next week at 11 a.m., and uh, we will not be doing uh, K through fifth kids. The older kids will have a spot for the younger kids, but they are doing some work on the air conditioning unit over there for next week, so we will bring them in kind of like a family worship Sunday. So just a heads up, one service at 11 o'clock. If you always come to the 11, that doesn't really affect you, so we'll see you next week at 11. Um, all right, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 is where we'll begin uh, this morning. Uh, if you are not haven't been here, we've been going through a series called Knowing God. Uh, we started all the way back in January, and what we've been doing is kind of walking through uh, the entire storyline of the Bible. And so we started way back in Genesis. We've made it all the way to Isaiah, and that's where we'll be uh, this morning looking at the message of the book of Isaiah. I'm attempting to do something I've never done before, which is preach the whole book of Isaiah in one sermon. So we'll see what happens. But let's pray and ask God to help us, and uh, we'll jump in. So Father, uh, we love you. God, at this time, we need your help. Father, give us eyes to see your scripture. Uh, God, would you empower your word uh, with the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts, and God, show us who you are. Uh, God, show us uh, who we are and God, the sin in our life that we need to confess and to uh, the next steps that we need to take in our relationship with you. And Father, I pray that you would show us how great of a Savior Jesus is. So Father, we need your help. Would you help us in Christ's name? Amen. Amen. So today we're starting and finishing the book of Isaiah in one sermon. So let me give you a little bit about the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah is the longest book in the Bible by chapter. There's 66 books uh, in the Bible. There's 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. And so uh, Isaiah, for a lot of commentators or scholars, are, is known as like a little Bible inside the Bible. And so uh, it, it kind of has a breakdown where there's 39 books uh, in the first part of Isaiah, kind of like the Old Testament. There's 39 books in the Old Testament of the Bible. And those books in Isaiah are about the judgment that's coming upon the people of God. Uh, Old Testament has a lot of judgment in it as well. And then if you bounce to the New Testament, you see 27 uh, books in the New Testament. There's 27 chapters in the latter part of Isaiah. And these chapters are a lot about the coming hope or the coming Messiah uh, in uh, the book of Isaiah. And so we see that this is the most quoted prophet in the New Testament. Uh, so Isaiah has, it's a very rich book. There's a lot of incredible uh, teaching in it. Isaiah was a prophet uh, in the book of Second Kings and really spoke on behalf of God during a very difficult time, but did it with great faithfulness. And so today what I want to do is jump into Isaiah and really give you a 30,000 foot view of what the book's about and uh, really jump into some, some parts of the book that I think will be very beneficial for us uh, to study together uh, as a church. And so the first is Isaiah's call, right? So I want to tell you about Isaiah's call. Isaiah chapter six, verses one through eight. Let's read them uh, together. It says, in the, king, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each, had, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. So very interesting start. Can you imagine this scene with Isaiah as God is calling him to be a prophet and calling him to go and preach and, 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 and prophesy about uh, judgment and hope to this group of people. He's having this encounter, this experience with God. He's in the throne room and he's seeing God. And you can imagine this, this scenario, as Andrew, Andrew said a while ago, could be very terrifying when you're standing face to face with God. Well, let's see, how does he respond? Woe to me, I cried. This is Isaiah. I am ruined. Ruined just means I'm dead. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So we see anytime somebody comes face to face with God in the Bible, their first immediate response is fall to their knees, I deserve to die, my sin is before me, right? And so anytime you see somebody encounter God, the first thing that happens is they get an accurate a picture of who they are and the sin that fills their life. But here, not only Isaiah's sin, but the sin of the people of Israel that Isaiah belongs to. But listen to what God does. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So instead of God punishing him and killing him for his sin, which his sin deserved versus a holy God is, is eternal death. Instead of killing him, God purified him. He, he justified him. He told him that his sins had been forgiven. And then we see how Isaiah responds. What does he say? He says, then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am send me. So just an incredible encounter we see between Isaiah and God. You can, it's, it's so vivid, you can almost picture it and put yourself uh, in the room. And I want to show you, there's, there's three things. This passage has done an incredible work in my life. I remember all the way back in 2007, uh, when I was a young lad, uh, first year of college, and uh, I was in Iceland, the country of Iceland, and I was on a mission trip and we were working with some church planners over uh, in the country of Iceland. And uh, the leader of the trip, uh, Danny Williams from First Baptist Lines, uh, asked me to lead a devotional. And he said, I want you to lead the passage, Isaiah chapter six, and talk about it. And so anyway, uh, I remember all the way back then, I was very a young Christian, uh, but this passage had a profound impact on my life because I saw the way Isaiah responded to the gospel of, God, here I am, whatever you need me to do, I'm willing to do it. He put his yes on the table very clearly. And from that day forward, uh, God began to do a work in my life. Uh, and and, and it's sim is similar to what he did in the book of Isaiah. So I want to show you three things that changed Isaiah's life forever and also changed my life forever. The first is, is Isaiah had an accurate view of God. He had an accurate view of God. Because of that, he had an accurate view of himself, which is the second thing I want to show you. And then thirdly, he had an accurate response to the grace of God, to the gospel. And I want you to see that these things work together. So letter A, let's talk about them. An accurate view of God. So Isaiah saw God for who he was. At this moment, everything in Isaiah's life changed forever. This was the type of experience that was literally a game changer for him. It changed everything about him. It, it was the, the inauguration of his ministry. At this point, we see God begin to transform Isaiah's life. And I want you to understand that it wasn't just knowledge about God that transformed Isaiah's life. Though he knew a lot about God, he was a part of the Israelites. He had been to church, obviously. He'd heard his parents talk about the God. It was an experience with God that transformed his life forever. You say, Billy, what do I mean? What's the difference between knowledge and an experience? Well, these things are very different. You can know a lot about a person, but never actually know a person. 
right? And so in the Bible, we see a lot of people that know a lot about God, but it's only when they have a personal encounter with this God, when the words of God, when what God has done in the gospel becomes personal to them, that they begin to be transformed by the gospel. Many of you guys know this. I grew up in church a lot. I was in and out of church. I went to church many times, heard many messages uh, before one time, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that God loved me and he loved me though I was in rebellion and living for myself and deserved to be punished by him. But instead of punishing me, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, his only son to die on a cross in my place so that I could be reconciled back to God through faith. And I responded in surrender and I responded in faith. And from that point forward, God began to transform every area of my life. Was I perfect? No, but he began to transform every area of my life. I began to live my life for him and not for myself. And that's what we see happening here is that Isaiah knew about God, but there was a moment and experience that he had that changed his life forever. And don't hear me wrong. Knowledge about God is important. And an experience with God is important too, right? So a lot of people like to take two different sides with this and say, well, all you need is an experience and you don't need any knowledge about God. No, knowledge about God is a very important thing. God's word was given to us to show us who God was, but also this can be just words on a page until we realize and the power of the Holy Spirit begins to work in our lives and these words become personal in mine and your life. It's important to understand the personalness, if that's a word, uh, to that God comes through the power of his Holy Spirit. And so what we see here is when all of Isaiah's knowledge about God, it, it literally burst to life when he had an experience with God. Everything he knew about God in a moment when he saw God it just burst to life and all of the misconceptions he had about God, all of the wrong attitudes he had about God, all of the doubts he had about God in an instant when he saw God for who he was completely changed. He saw his holiness. He saw his power, his sovereignty, his goodness, his grace, his justice, his mercy, his love, his purpose. All of these things began to just burst alive in Isaiah to the point where it transformed his life forever. And here's the good news about our God. He's still alive. He's real and he's available. The Bible says if we seek him with all of our heart, we will find him. And he's given us a book. And this is not just any book. This book is the revelation of God. That means he is trying to reveal something to us. He is trying to bring us into a moment just like Isaiah where he shows us who he is, a moment that can transform our lives forever. But also he's given us his spirit, which is the secret in the sauce. The spirit is what brings us to life. This is what makes our experience with God personal. It's what makes it real. This is what makes the word of God begin to come to life inside of us. And the, and the promise of scripture is that God wants to transform our lives. There's not one person in this room that God doesn't want to do a work in your life. The only problem with, uh, with us is us, right? We're the only person that gets in the way of what God's trying to do in our life. And here's the thing I want you to understand. Transformation doesn't happen when you come to God with preconceived notions, there's so many people that come to God, but they want to see God the way that they want to see God. Like they want God, but they want God on their terms. God, I'm good with you coming into my life as long as I can keep this, this, or this, or as long as you don't tell me to do this, this, and this. But that's not the way uh, God works. Uh, we see God for who he is. When we see his word, we get the God of the Bible. And when we begin to see him and begin to grow in our knowledge and begin to experience the one true God of the Bible, he begins to transform our life forever. And this is exactly what he's done with Isaiah. And, and there's people in this room right now, listen, you have a, a, a view of God. And, and that view of God has not been shaped by God's word. It's been shaped by maybe a pastor like me telling you about God, maybe something you've read on the internet, maybe an experience that you've been through in your life. And, and that may be a good view of God or it may be a bad view of God. 
But the great news of the gospel is that God has given us a book. He's given us his scripture to reveal who he is to us. And we have access to know God for who he is. We do not have to depend on another person to do that. Right? And, and the only good I am to you is the good that I point you to God's word. Because if I'm up here telling you what I think or what my thoughts are on a certain situation, okay, that may be all right. But at the end of the day, it's the revelation of God that transforms our heart like it did Isaiah. Secondly, Isaiah had an accurate view of self. So not only did he have an accurate view of God because he experienced God, the God of the Bible, he also had an accurate view of self. Notice what Isaiah said when he sees God, woe to me. I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. In, uh, lips. in the face of the holiness of God, which is literally the greatest mirror ever, when we see God for who he is, we can't help but see ourselves for who we actually are. Isaiah sees his sin. Not only does he see his sin, but he also sees the sin of the people of Israel. And he falls down to his knees and says, woe is me, I deserve to die. Because sin against a holy, infinite, eternal God is holy, infinite, eternal death, right? It doesn't matter what sin you've committed, what matters is who you've sinned against. And the wages of sin of the God of the Bible is death. And Isaiah knew that. And so when he saw his sin and what he deserved because of his sin, he fell to his knees and knew he needed to die. He deserved to die. Listen, this is not just Isaiah. You go through any encounter with a person and God in the Bible, and the first thing they do is drop to their knees in just utter terror. They're scared to death that God is going to kill them, and they know that that's what they deserve because of their sin. And listen to me, this is important. So many people want to skip over this message in the church today. They want to tell you you're good, you're a snowflake, you're going to be great, you just need to switch up and be a better person. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that before God, you and I stand condemned and deserve to die in our sin. But God loves us. And because of that, he shows us his grace. But we have to understand the bad news before we can actually value the good news. Because listen, it's only when we see our sin for what it truly is and what it deserves that the grace of God transforms our life. Write that down. It's only when we see our sin for what it truly is and what, what it truly deserves that the grace of God transforms our life. For some reason, uh, for some of us, really the reason the gospel hasn't transformed our life is because we don't understand how much we need it. Like our relationship with God is just casual. Like, yeah, we'll get to him when we want to, da, 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 da. I don't really need him, but it's great because when I die, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. So I'll kind of satisfy him in, in little ways here and there. But the, the idea with that casualness is we don't understand our need for God and we desperately need God. So put yourself in the shoes of Isaiah here. You and I both deserve death before God because sin against God deserves death. However, think about this idea. You, you, you're literally sitting in front of a judge that condemns you to death. And, and, and think of it in a courtroom as they have a big uh, screen behind them and they begin to just flash through videos of your life. All of the bad sin that you've ever committed, good, bad, ugly, all the ways that you've fallen short. Just think about how humiliating and, and terrible that would be to do that. Even in my own eyes, I think about that. And then I think about the sentence, death, he deserves to die. But then I think about God stepping in and sending one of his angels and he flies over and I think he's about to kill me. But instead of killing me, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. You're not going to have to die because I'm going to send my son to die in your place. You're not, your life will never be the same. Never. Isaiah's life was never the same after this point. It's, it's this moment when we understand that we deserve to die and the grace of God begins to burst in our life. It's then and only then that when we sing the words of amazing grace, it begins to burst of sweetness in our life. When we sing a song like grace like this, it begins to move us to tears because we understand how much we need God's amazing grace. 
You see, the truth of the gospel is that God knows us. He knows our sin. We stand, we, we stand uh, exposed before him and everything that we are, all of it. And instead of killing us, he gives us grace. But in order to give us this grace, he has to kill his only son in our place. That's crazy love, crazy love that God would do, which leads to the next point. Now the question becomes, how do we respond to it? And Isaiah gives us a beautiful picture of our response, the only response to the grace of God, an accurate response to God's grace. Listen to this. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. Isaiah responds by putting his yes on the table. This is a full surrender. This is a blank check with his life before God. God, now that I've seen you for who you are, your goodness, your holiness, your, your justice, uh, just everything, your love, your mercy, your grace, all I can do, knowing what I deserve to be punished and knowing the grace that you've shown me in the gospel is my life is yours. Whatever, whenever, God, I'm willing you notice when we baptize people here, if you've never been to a baptism service, anytime somebody stands in the baptism waters before baptism, we ask them to answer two questions. The first question is, do you believe that Christ has done everything necessary to save you? Not by your works, not by anything that you've done or haven't done. Do you believe Christ and Christ alone has done everything necessary to save you? And the answer is yes, if you're a Christian. But then we ask a second question, and that second question is this. Are you willing to go wherever God asks you to go and do whatever God asks you to do? And that's the question of lordship. That's the question that Isaiah answered when he responded to God. God, I'm willing to do whatever you ask me to do and go wherever you ask me to go. He laid his life down fully. What we have to understand is that God saves us to send us. Our God is a sending God. That means he's, he's like a tornado. Have you ever seen a tornado work? What it does is pull things in and spins it around and, and transforms it and then throws it back out uh, into. And, and it's different than it was when it went in. That's what God's grace is like. It pulls us in like a tornado and sends us back out. It sends us back out for the glory of God. That's why we say here at Connection that saved people live sent. That, that when God rescues us, we become a part of his rescue team. That when we become a part of the family of God, we become about the family business. And God's family business is to make disciples of all nations, is to live our life for him and with him wherever we go in this world. And that's what we see in the life of Isaiah. He was compelled. He was a compelled man. And what, he, what was he compelled by? He was compelled by the love of God. He had experienced the love and the grace of God. There's only one appropriate response to, to having an experience with God, and it's full surrender. God, here I am. Send me. And quite honestly, there's nothing more freeing in the Christian life than being fully surrendered to God. You will kill yourself trying to put one foot in with God and one foot out because he don't really do that. And it's miserable as a Christian. It's miserable if, if God's trying to work in our hearts to keep one foot out and put one foot in. But when we go all in with God, there's no more satisfying feeling than we'll ever have to know that our heart is completely exposed before God. He knows exactly who I am. I'm fully known and I'm fully loved and I'm fully saved because I've come to Christ and I've given him everything that I have. So here's my question. Have you experienced God this way? I'm not asking, are you Isaiah? I'm not asking, have you seen him visually? Because all of us may not be able to see it, God, the way actually the Bible, New Testament tells us we'll never see God, but we can see God and experience God through his word and through other ways. But here's the thing. When you've experienced God, did it have the same effect that it had on Isaiah? Did it lead to surrender? Did it lead to an accurate view of yourself? Did it change your life forever? If not, we have to ask the question, have we experienced the God of the Bible? 
The second thing we see in Isaiah's life is out of Isaiah chapter one. I told you Isaiah was uh, kind of uh, divided up into one through 39 and then uh, the next 27 towards the end all the way to 66 are about hope. But we get this first part that's all a warning from God through Isaiah. So we get Isaiah's warning. I wanna read it to you. Uh, it, it is, it is uh, pretty intense, so buckle up a little bit. Here's the message that God gives Isaiah in chapter one. He says, starting in verse one, it says, the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, these were the kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. Okay, this is God speaking about the Israelites, about the people of God. This is God's word to his church. Listen to this. I reared children and I brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master. The donkey knows its owner's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to this sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evil doers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Listen, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to, to, to me. New moon, Sabbath, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feast and your appointed festivals, I hate with all of my being. This is God speaking. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Think of even in the midst of their rebellion. He says, come now, let's settle this. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But listen, if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. So in this passage, what we get are two warnings, really just kind of if you sum them all up, and then we get one plea. We get two warnings. The first warning is don't turn your back on God. Like Isaiah is literally saying, do not turn your back on God. Turn back to God. Do not turn your back on him. Don't forget about all that he's done. He's not okay with your sin and your rebellion. So turn back to God. Do not turn your back on God. And then the second thing we see is he kind of transitions more to the religious aspect and tells them, don't settle for religion. Listen, don't just go through the motions and think that God's pleased with you. God cares about your heart. He doesn't care about your religious activity if your heart is not in it. And it almost seems as if God is mad. He hates religious activity when our heart is far from him. Nothing infuriates God more than hypocrisy. It breaks his heart. And then he gives us this plea, this grace at the end. Come now, turn back to God. And then he gives us two words, in willing obedience. So let's talk about these things. The first, the warning is to don't turn your back on God. These are strong words. He says that they have rebelled against me, that they, the, even the ox knows his master and the donkey knows uh, its home, but Israel does not know. They don't understand even the God of their, of their ancestors. He says they're a sinful nation. They're, they're, they're a brood of evildoers. They're, they're given to corruption. They've forsaken God. They've turned their backs on him. Anytime we forget what God's done, anytime we rebel against God, anytime we forsake the Lord and his ways, anytime we harden our hearts toward God's word and God's grace, 
The Bible says we turn our backs on the great God that saved us and nothing breaks his heart more. Notice what it started with though for the Israelites. It started with forgetfulness. Forgetfulness is where it started. Blake talked about this a few weeks ago with even with the Red Sea when the Israelites, God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt and they, they get across the Red Sea, God had delivered them, he's fed them and all they do is complain. And they, had, they almost months later, a year later, they had forgotten, forgotten the great deliverance that God had given them. And they began to walk in sin, forgetting who God is and all that he had done for them. And just like the Israelites, you and I, we are a people that are quick to forget all that God has done. And once we forget him, it doesn't take long for us to turn and begin to do our own thing. We begin to live for ourselves And the Bible says we turn our back on God. We don't like to use those terms, though, because those terms are are harsh. It seems uh, to, to, uh, it it paints an image of somebody literally turning around and walking away from us. And we don't want to see ourselves as walking away from God. But just because you can't visibly see and visibly walk away from God, don't think that you can't walk away from God spiritually. This is very personal language. And it's exactly what happens when we get so busy that we don't even think about God, when we prioritize other things over God in our lives, when we willingly choose sin over God, or when we know uh, that God has called us to do something and we just ignore the command or we ignore the calling. Like the Israelites, we too turn our backs on God's and we break the heart of our heavenly father who loves us so much. And Isaiah says, don't do it. Don't turn your back. Don't turn your back. And then his second warning is don't settle for religion. Not only had the Israelites turned their back on God in rebellion, but they were playing religious games and trying to cover up their, their, their hard-heartedness by just going through the religious motions. And God was not happy about it. He called trampling. He called it trampling on his grace. Listen to verse 10 again. I want to read this because it's, it's so... Much. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I don't, I, basically, I have it all. I don't need your sacrifices if they're not true sacrifices. I own everything. He says, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feast, and your appointed festivals. I hate them with all of my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread your hands out to pray, I hide my eyes from you. I am not listening. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see what God is doing? They, do you see what the Israelites are doing? They're, they're participating in religious activity. They're going to the temple they're making sacrifices. They're giving to God. They're, they're praying. They're, they're celebrating the festivals of what God has done in the past, but they're doing it without their heart being in it. They're just going through the motions of uh, Christianity, and they're going through the motions of God's law, and they're going through the motions of celebrating God, and their heart is far from God. And it's important for us to understand and to learn from this that it is possible to do religious things and our hearts be far from God. We see the Pharisees in the New Testament. They were great at this and God and Jesus was very upset with them. This is easy to do. We we can't just look at this and say, this isn't us. We have to search our own hearts. It's possible to appear religious outwardly and our hearts be far from God inwardly. But I want you to listen to me. I want you to write this down. God wants your heart not your religion. God wants your heart, not your religion, not your religious activity. God isn't interested in meaningless religious activity. That's not what he's looking for. God wants our hearts. Our motivation matters. He wants our hearts to reflect his heart. He wants our hearts to motivate for him, our love for him to be the motivation for everything that we do. He didn't want us to be half to Christians. You know what I'm talking about? I have to go to church. I have to read my Bible. I have to do this or I can't do this. And I I wish I could do this. No, it's I get to be with God. 
I get the privilege to know God, to be in a relationship with him. I get the privilege to gather with my brothers and sisters and worship God and hear the word of God. I get the privilege to serve God, to give to God. Everything that God's done for me, I get the opportunity to give back to him. This is the heart that God desires for his people. Listen to what he says in verse 17. He says, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. What is he talking about? Is he trying to get him to do more things? No. What he's saying is that, that his heart is to care for people that are hurting. His heart is to care for the least of these, to take care of people that are in need. These are things that only people with the heart of God do. This literally takes seeing the world to a different lens. It takes seeing the world the same way God sees the world, where you begin to serve others, you begin to count others more significant than yourself. Listen to me, Connection Church. Do not settle for religious activity. It breaks the heart of God. It makes God angry. And you miss out on so much when you focus just on the outside of your life and trying to do this or that or the other, bring your heart to God every day and allow him to transform it from the inside out because God saved you for a purpose. He saved you on purpose for his purposes. And when our heart is far from him, we will not walk in the purposes of God. And then Isaiah's plea, lastly, willing obedience is what he says. Listen to verse 16. He says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Let's settle it now. You don't have to run anymore. Listen, I know you've rebelled against me. And it angers me, but it doesn't anger me so much that the opportunity to come back to me is not there. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, underline that. If you are willing and obedient, then you will eat the good things of the land. God has good plans. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Even in the midst of the Israelites' rebellion, we see the God of grace reveal himself. He reveals himself with an opportunity for salvation, an opportunity to obey, an opportunity to experience his goodness. The sad reality for the Israelites here is that it never happened. They never repented. They continued to run from God, to turn their backs on God, and ultimately God judged them through the Babylonians. And the Babylonians came and they destroyed Jerusalem and they took them back to captivity. But the truth is we can be different. We can be different. Today, the invitation is the same. We can learn from Isaiah's plea to the Israelites. There's two important words, willing and obedient. It means that willingness matters. Our attitude matters. Our heart matters. God doesn't want begrudging Christians, people that hate God. He wants people that love him, that understand what he's done, that understand he's a good father that has good plans for their life. And not only that, he wants Christians that, that listen to him, that listen and obey because they trust him with all of their heart. He's not interesting in begrudging obedience. He wants obedience from a willing heart. Listen to how John says it in 1 John 5. He says, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God. How do we know if we love God? We keep his commands. Listen, and his commands are not burdensome. And his commands are not burdensome. Listen, when we love God, his commands are not burdensome. They're joyful because we love God and we wanna please God. We wanna do the things of God. When we understand that God's plan for us is good that it and that it leads us to abundant life and the life we were created to live, then his commands actually become desirable. Like we want the commands of God. And then we, like David, a man after God's own heart, says in Psalm 119, 33 through 35, can say, teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all of my heart. Listen, direct me in the path of your commands for there I find great delight. 
We can be like David. We can, we can literally, God can transform our heart to where we love the things of God. And this is what God wants. He don't want people to walk into the church and be like, that's the most miserable group of people I've ever met in my life. They come to church, but they don't really want to be there. They sing and they put their hands in their pocket. They don't even act like they know who they're singing to. They don't celebrate the things of God. They just are there. I don't know why they're there. But listen, how many times have you and I come into church and that's our attitude? And we walk out and we think, man, I've done a good thing. I went to church this week. God's happy with me. God doesn't want your religious activity. He wants your heart. And listen, don't settle for religion. Don't settle for anything less than willing obedience. And when your heart's not there, listen, you come to this altar and you pray, God, give me the heart that I need. God, help me. It's dependence that mature believers understand. It's dependence. God, help me. God, help me. If that's not your prayer, then you have no idea what it means to follow God. That's what God wants. Isaiah knows it. So let me ask you a question. Is your life characterized by willing obedience? Is your life characterized by willing obedience? And then the last thing I want to talk to you about is the hope of Isaiah. Isaiah's hope. We see that not all of Isaiah is a book about judgment. Listen, there's parts where you read in the first half and it's like, God, I think God's about to kill him now. But then you get to the end and there's glimpses of hope that God's going to send this Messiah and this Messiah is going to put the sins of the people on his back and he's going to take the punishment that they deserve. And it's almost written like a love letter to the people of God. The last 27 chapters of Isaiah are prophecy of hope, of a, hope, a hopeful and a, and a Messiah to come. And one of the cool, coolest things about the Old Testament are the prophecies about Jesus. I don't know how much you know about the prophecies of Jesus, but there are over 500 prophecies written thousands of years uh, before Jesus came about Christ and what he would do. And these prophecies are specific. I'm telling you, uh, I want to tell you a quick story. Uh, when I was in college at Georgia Southern University, which is a secular university, I took a public speaking class. And this was right after I'd gotten saved. God had begun to work in my heart. And I, was, I think I was the only Christian in the class. And I didn't realize it at the time, but the teacher was actually a Christian. And her husband was a pastor, but she didn't really say that. So, of course, she hands out our first assignment of what we're supposed to speak on. And my first public speaking, y'all think of me now, and you're like, oh, public speaking, that's not a big deal. Listen, I, I was not and still don't claim to be a great public speaker, and I was scared to death. And so she says, hey, I got an idea. You're a Christian, right? Why don't you speak, uh, do your first speech on why you believe the Bible? And I was like, yeah, that's easy. Does anybody else in here believe? No, you know, so I'm in the midst of, of Babylon, so to speak, trying to convince people uh, how to, why they should believe uh, the Bible. And college is a time where people challenge the Bible, not try to buy into what the Bible's trying to say. But one of the things that God did, and that was a life-changing moment for me because I began to study, you know, and God began to move my heart towards ministry and I really enjoyed. And, but one of the things that was so profound to me was looking through and using the 500 prophecies in the Old Testament, whether you're a believer or not, if somebody predicts one thing is gonna happen in the future and it happens, you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. 500, it's like, hold on. Like something's going on, something is divine. And that's what these prophecies do for us is they really ratify that the Bible is that it has divine authorship because it's not just the book of Isaiah. Let me read a few examples of these prophecies that I'm talking about and listen to the great specificity in which they're spoken and how they've come true in the New Testament. Scripture tells us that the coming Messiah would be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7:14. We all know that was true. Scripture tells us that the Messiah would come from the line of Abraham in Genesis 22, and he does. Scripture tells us that a descendant from Judah, the Messiah would be a descendant from Judah in Genesis 49, and he was. Scripture tells us that the Messiah would come from the household of David in Jeremiah 23, and he does. He tells us that he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. He was born there. Scripture tells us that he would, he would be presented with gifts at his birth, Psalm 72, 10, and then forced to flee an evil king who wanted to kill all the children in the region of Bethlehem, Jeremiah 31. We know that to be true. 
And then he'd be exiled to Egypt as a kid and then returned home to Israel from there, Hosea 11. That was true as well. He would claim to be God with us, Isaiah chapter 7, and he did that. He will be preceded by a messenger crying out in the wilderness. We know John the Baptist came and quoted actually Isaiah and said, I am that messenger. He would begin his ministry in Galilee, Isaiah 9.1. He would perform many miracles, Isaiah 35.6. He would enter Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, Zechariah 9.9. Crazy, like what? A borrowed donkey. And then he comes in and guess what he does? Borrow a donkey as he comes into Jerusalem. It's, it's crazy to think about. And then on, on literally in one day, 20 specific prophecies get fulfilled in the life of Christ. Scripture tells us that the coming Messiah would be betrayed by a friend. Psalm 41, he was. He would, scripture tells us that Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11, and he was. And then it says that silver would then be thrown into God's house and used to buy a potter's field, in which we later see in Acts that it was. And hours before his death, he'd be abandoned by his friends. Zechariah 13, 7, and he was. He'd be accused by false witnesses, Psalm 35, and he was. He'd stand silent before his accusers when they taunted him. He was. He'd be wounded and bruised, Isaiah 53, and he was. He'd be mocked, Psalm 22, and he was. He'd be beaten and sped upon, Isaiah 50, and he was. He, he'd have his garden, garments split up and gambled for, Psalm 22, and they were. Physically stagger under the weight of his affliction, and we saw that he did, Psalm 109. He'd have his hands and feet pierced, Psalm 22, and they were. He'd be executed together with criminals, Isaiah 53, and he was. He'd experience great thirst in Psalm 69. We know he was. He did. He'd pray for his persecutors, and he did, Isaiah 53. He'd have his side pierced in Zechariah 12, and he was. Despite great physical travail, not one of his bones would be broken, Psalm 34, and they weren't. He would die at midday, and during the hour of his death, darkness would miraculously descend upon the earth, Amos 8, 9, and it did. He would, he would then be buried in a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53, 9, and he was. So over and over again, I could just continue to go. These are just a few of them, over 500 written thousands of years before Christ that were confirmed and, were, and literally down to the specific detail came true. Thousands of years. I don't know about you, but if a person tells me one thing and then it comes true, and I'm thinking, okay, this guy maybe, you know, maybe it's coincidence. He tells me 500 things, thousands of years before they happen and they come. I'm thinking, all right, I need to start listening to this guy and even believe what he says. So why do I tell you that? Billy, why are you telling me all this? Why are you talking so fast? I don't even know what Zechariah is. I tell you this because I want you to know that the Bible is true. Secular, non-believer, non-believer, it's true. And every person that I've met that tried to disprove the Bible comes back and actually becomes a believer because the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus is who he says he is. But here's the catch. If Jesus is who he says he is, then that has massive implications on mine and your life. Massive it has implications about our eternity and where we'll spend our eternity in heaven or hell. It has massive implications on what you were created for and what your created purpose, who you were created by, what you were created for and what your purpose on this earth is. It has incredible implications in every area of your life about your salvation and how you can be saved and be reconciled into a relationship with God. It's important that we understand it. This is why the Bible for us is a treasure. It is the revelation of God in our life. And I want to close today by doing something a little different than, than maybe we're used to, but there's, there's one chapter in Isaiah that is probably the most famous prophecy. And it's probably the most detailed and it literally just moves you to worship. Like literally just will bring you to tears when you read it. And I want us as a church together to read it aloud to lead us into this last song of worship. And I want you to allow the word of God to do what it does. It takes hearts and it softens them. And it begins to produce faith 
and it begins to transform your heart from the inside out. So let me pray for you. Why do that? Will you stand with me? Father, here's my prayer this morning, God. You don't need me. God, your word is sufficient. God, your word has the power. Your gospel has the power to transform hearts. God, it has the power to move us, to worship you, to see you for who you are. So God, would you empower your word through your Holy Spirit and move our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna have it up on the screen. Will you read it with me? Verse one, one, two, three. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 